Our reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Fishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, aromatic resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord, God, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to see the man, the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all living stock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God calls the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, 
and they became or become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Amen. I want to ask you this morning, what does heaven on earth look like for you? Uh, Eric Weiner came up with this idea of thin places in a New York Times piece back in 2011. Uh, He talked about these places as places where the distance between heaven and earth collapses and we're able to catch glimpses of the divine or the transcendent or Eric's a secular Jew in New York and so he calls it the infinite whatever. He's a man searching for this infinite whatever. He, He wrote a book about that search but he finds himself closest to God in these places, these thin places. So what is your version of a thin place, a place where you go and the distance between heaven and earth collapses? Your own Eden, this paradise garden that Phil just read about for us, uh, is there anywhere like that for you? And I wonder if you can picture a place like that. If you can't picture one, just picture Eden. We just had it read Uh, described to us as Phil read, I wonder what an ideal human would do in that thin place that you're imagining to cultivate that sense of heaven, to keep that barrier feeling permeable. I just wonder what in your own picture of paradise it would look like for an ideal human to live there and keep it in that state. Because in Genesis 2, we find a paradise garden and a human put there to cultivate it. Uh, Genesis 2 picks up the same big ideas from Genesis 1, covering the same creations of the heaven and the earth. And where Genesis 1 tells a global story, Genesis 2 goes local, taking us to this region called Eden, and in it a garden, and in it a human. This human, uh, before him, the earth, like in Genesis 1, is desolate and uninhabited. There are no plants, no rain, and no one to work the ground yet. There's also, you might notice, no deep, no dark or chaotic waters preventing life like we saw in Genesis 1. There are, in fact, streams of water coming up from the earth to give life, to water the ground. In other creation stories, in other pictures of the world from the ancient world, in Babylon's creation story, there are two cosmic water gods. Tiamat, the salty water god, and Apsu, the fresh water god. I just want you to have that in your mind as we read this story. Salt water... The deep, the thing that covered the ground, it's not great for plants or life, but this water that bubbles up from underground is life-giving water. Fresh water in the ancient world is a source of life. For farms or for cities, cities were built on rivers, they still are today, we're in the river city here in Brisbane, but fresh water meant life. So origin stories in the ancient world would deal with the source of this life-giving water. And we'll see more of that water in a little bit, but first... We're going to zoom in on God making this human. He forms a man shaped from the earth and what becomes a name Adam is a pun on the Hebrew word for ground, Adamah. God makes earthling. He breathes the breath of life into his nostrils and this man becomes a living being. Now remember back in chapter 1, we saw God creating people in his own image And I said this word, the Hebrew word for image, describes both idol statues and kings in the ancient world. Well, there's something going on in this chapter where this story of God creating a living image of himself, a living statue, mirrors and challenges the stories 
Israel's neighbours believed about making images of God. To give life to an idol statue in the ancient world, they give life, they didn't become moving, living things. You'd go through this ritual, you'd form a statue from clay or wood, you'd place it in an orchard, and so there are tablets that describe this ritual that have been dug up, you'd place it in an orchard and you'd bring water from the absolute, that living water that bubbles up from the ground, and you'd bring water from the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. These are the river systems that gave life to the nations around Israel. They're also the rivers, two of the rivers that are mentioned in Genesis 2. And you'd give it life through this ritual. You'd take the statue, you'd wash its mouth out so that it could eat and be like the God in the world. It would live and breathe and represent that God. And then you'd place them in the temple so that they might image God. And it was especially the king's job to build these statues. To build these statues to spread the images of an empire's God throughout the parts of the world where their gods reigned. There's another description of this ritual where a king named Esarhaddon, he gets a, a mention in the Old Testament a few times. He's a, an Assyrian king who rebuilds Babylon, the city of Babylon after his dad wipes it out. He gets uh, these mentions in the Old Testament, but what he does in this inscription that we have is he repairs idol statues, these images that had been removed from the temples in Babylon. He restores the gods and their presence to these desecrated statues by recreating them. And he brags in this tablet, he says he was chosen by Babylon's gods to recreate these images of God and to put them in Babylon's rebuilt temple. He took these statues that had been exiled from their temples, they'd been captured by his dad, pulled out of the temples, out of the land. He takes them back to an orchard, a garden, a fruity garden, an orchard surrounded by waters. Now, if you're in the city of Babylon, the Euphrates River is running through the city. And he conducts those same rituals you can read about elsewhere to give these statues, these images of God, life again. This is what a king did. They gave life to these images of the God of their empire and ultimately the line between king and God was murky. Kings were also in inscriptions called the image of God using the same letters that we get in the Hebrew language but in other languages from neighbouring countries. And there's a king of the region that becomes Assyria see if you can pronounce that one, Sekulti Ninurta, who has these inscriptions that call him the image of their God. And eventually, kings in the ancient world would not just have images of the gods as they imagined them placed in temples around their kingdoms, but images of themselves as gods. There was no separation of church and state in the ancient world. The king was the chief priest, the image of their God's rule in the world. And so Israel's origin story it's different. It doesn't have a king making a statue that doesn't actually move in an orchard, a dead god that they have to then pretend that the god's living. They go through all this kind of cognitive dissonance stuff of imagining the god alive. Israel's story has a god who forms his own statue, his own statue man in an orchard and breathes actual life, not into his mouth but into his nostrils so that it can, this man, he can eat and live. In this story, there's a mirror being held up to these foreign stories about the origins of the gods they worship. Just as the story reveals how God sees his humans as sacred, divinely formed representatives, living, breathing statues, royal rulers, the other stories are being condemned. And so imagine how this story played out in life for Israel 
with these other nations as their neighbours, with their fancy temples and statues there in Babylon. Humans are God's living images, so unlike their neighbours, Israel shouldn't make statues of God. Are you familiar with the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments? Worshipping those statues, they know are breathless and dead, that would be dumb. Especially because unlike humans, they have no breath in them, which is exactly what the Psalms and the prophets say about idol statues and about people who worship them when they become what they worship. The prophets like Isaiah even mock the rituals involved in constructing an idol statue. Isaiah talks about craftsmen who would shape wood into human form or or dig up gold and melt it down to make idols, to put it in a temple. The carpenter who makes this human form in all its glory that might dwell in a shrine while at the same time cutting off the other half of the wood and cooking their food with it. See, this is Israel's critique of the gods of the nations around them and it's all the seeds for this critique are planted here in Genesis 2. This Genesis origin story shows why worshipping idols is stupid. They are breathless and uninspired. While the living God shows us that real humanity has life by his breath. It gives us a sense we weren't meant to stay as earthlings like statues of wood and clay, but to live as people who reflect heaven on earth. Inspired by divine breath, given God's life as we enjoy life in his presence, in his good presence, in this garden sanctuary, this orchard. The idol's They're made from the ground and the garden, dirt and trees, and they're decorated with gold and precious stones like onyx that are there in the ground in the regions around Eden. And we can choose to worship that created stuff, gold, the power it brings, things of this world, even worshipping humans, other earthlings, or we can cultivate these things that God placed in the ground and use it in our God-given task, in our job as humans being made to represent the Creator and His rule on earth. And these same substances, gold and onyx, that are there in the ground around Eden, aren't just used to decorate idol statues in the Old Testament. They are also used to clothe Israel's priests. When we get a description of the uh, costume that the priests are to wear, they have to make the ephod out of gold and take onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel and then mount the stones in gold. This raw material that's there around Eden becomes part of the priestly task of God's people. And so there's an overlap here going on conceptually with this task given to humanity between priests and kings and idol statues and gardeners. That's a strange one to throw in the mix, isn't it? But if we pop back to Babylon or any other ancient city, these cities built on rivers. In these cities, the kings weren't just responsible for building idol statues and building temples and spreading them through their kingdom. They were also gardeners. They were seen as responsible for the fruitfulness of their land. So they'd plant gardens and farms and vineyards. Uh, I think the hanging gardens of Babylon, that legendary garden. They would build garden cities on rivers like the Tigris or the Euphrates where they would give life to their dead statues and prop up their rule and it was all connected to how fruitful they could be. And so it becomes interesting, doesn't it, that Israel, when they're in exile in Babylon, they're told to plant their own gardens, their own little Edens perhaps. But in the Eden story, it's actually God who plants the garden. God plants the garden in the east, in Eden, and there he puts the man, the earthling he's formed. It's God 
who provides fruitfulness in this garden in the form of all the kinds of trees that grow out of the ground that are pleasing to the eye and good for food and the tree of life is there too. There's another tree and we'll see more of it next week. But he gives human, earthling Adam, the job of working and taking care of the garden. He makes a gardener. A statue, a living statue, royal gardener, priest man, and he gives him the job of working. Uh, it's the word for serve. It's, it's a, an almost religious word often. It can be translated as a kind of worship. Uh, he gives him this job of working and this job of taking care of, which has a sense of guarding. It's, it's what the cherub at the end of chapter 3 with the sword is going to do to guard the garden when Adam and Eve get kicked out. These two words, they get paired together a bunch of times in the Old Testament as instructions for the priests. In the tabernacle, in Numbers, and then in the temple, in Chronicles, they're the task of God's priests in these thin places where we see heaven and earth intersecting. God's priests are like living idol statues when they do this working and keeping their dress in gold and onyx. They're doing that work of representing God on the, in the world mediating, standing between the people and God. And that's the task we find for earthling in Genesis 2, in Eden. Now think back to how you imagined living in your thin place, what the good life that cultivated that sense of heaven would look like. If it was a beach, you might be wanting to preserve the water quality, stop it becoming overcrowded, keeping the litter out, keeping the the pests out, the, the vehicles that drive along the sand while you're sunbaking. You'd clean it and protect it. If it was a mountain, you'd stop people building ugly stuff like zip lines. We've got some people from Canmore here. Hi. Uh, Or awful houses that block the view and you'd pick up the rubbish. You'd, You'd try to keep the plants in good order, native plants, keep cane toads out, guarding it from those outside pests. This is basically what Adam is told to do in this heaven on earth space. The same job the priests are given in the tabernacle and the temple. Keep it doing the job it's made to do. Keep it being a heaven on earth space. And earthling Adam is to enjoy God's hospitality while he works, to enjoy life with God, feasting on the tree of life, living as long as he enjoys life in God's presence, eating all the other trees as well, all the fruit, while contemplating this other tree that's there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil not eating from it. We're just going to leave that hanging till next week. It's like that Chekhov's gun thing. It's there in Act 1. It's going to be fired by Act 3. But before we move on, let's just pause to notice these rivers that we're told are part of the story, the landscape. This water of life, Eden's river, is the source of life and flourishing for all the nations that end up being Israel's neighbours. All those idol-loving enemies who cart them off into exile who look big and powerful with their images of God, who will be opposed to God, all their fruitfulness comes via these rivers that come out of God's source of life for the world. Life flows out of this garden and into the world. Now just as we saw in chapter 1, humans were made, created to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and rule it for God, Earthling Adam's job was to spread the garden across the earth as God's living statue, his priestly king, by gardening, by partnering God with, in cultivating and protecting this garden paradise as 
more images of God were made. Where God gives life at his table or his tree, that's the source of life to the world. Life was meant to spread out from this thin place where heaven and earth meet. See, Genesis 2 unpacks the Genesis 1 idea of humans being made in God's image. In Israel's story, this role is for all humans, not just for kings and not just for men. Because like the desolate and uninhabited land was a problem to be solved in Genesis 1, there's a barrier to fruitfulness going on in Genesis 2 that gets overcome. In Genesis 1, over and over and over again, we're told it's good, but here it's not good because earthling Adam is alone. We see a bit of his life in God's likeness in this kind of quest for a a companion, a partner, because where in chapter 1 God names things, he calls things what they become, in chapter 2, earthling Adam meets the animals that are also formed out of the ground, and whatever he calls them, that's their name. He's ruling over the animals and the birds, but none of them are a suitable helper for him until God makes a woman, a helper not from the ground, but from his side. She's the first life in Genesis 2. Uh, The plants, the the animals, the humans are all described as being out of the earth. She's the first life not from the earth. She comes from his side. And it's worth just pausing on the word helper in the context of this human task to be fruitful and multiply. It's easy for us, I think, to read this and to think that the word helper is subordinate. So she comes in as like a PA to the the earthman king. But that's not what the words mean and it's not what the narrative is suggesting. The words here for suitable helper in the Hebrew, it's Eza Konegdo, Doug or Kamina can correct me on my pronunciation. They don't have a picture of domestic helper in them at all. Ezra is often more like a deliverer. It's used in military pictures about God coming to Israel's aid, holding a shield for Israel, like here in Deuteronomy. It's about God as an Ezra, a helper. It's more like a military ally. Uh, The suitability is more about the ability and necessity of Eve, this woman, helping this earthman Adam function the way God has created humans to function, to rule over the earth together to bring God's presence together, his life, his love, this fruitfulness that pours out, this creation of heaven on earth places, the guarding and keeping. Now, I copped some flack for this last time, but remember how a thing is a thing in the ancient world when it does what that thing is made to do? Well, Adam is not good until Eve arrives because he can't be the thing he's made to be. Because being an image bearer of God requires males and females in partnership, working towards fruitfulness, working towards multiply, working towards spreading God's rule, his image, these heavenly places over the face of the earth. And so the woman is taken from the man's side and part of their shared purpose is oneness, operating together as one. Our marriage is in here, but it's not only marriage. This isn't saying we're half people waiting for a person of the opposite sex to complete us in marriage, but this task that God gives humans of producing fruitful life, this life-giving generative nature of God, it requires more than just one person. The giving birth, the creation of life requires two people. So this is where Jesus goes, 
uh, when he talks about marriage, but this task of being human, being fruitful and multiplying, we saw as we finished Matthew a few weeks ago, anticipates the Great Commission, the call to be fruitful and multiply by making disciples of Jesus. The human task becomes the task for the new humanity, and it's a task for all of us in relationship with God, whether we are married or single. Earth man was incomplete, not good, unable to function as fully human while he was alone. One human alone can't take on the task given to image-bearing males and females in chapter 1, representing God and ruling his world. Which is interesting when you think of who the image of God was in Babylon. It was one human, and it was a man, the king. One earthling can't cultivate and guard the garden alone, resisting those forces opposed to life, the chaotic waters, the darkness, the things that get in the way, perhaps even the serpent who we'll meet next week. Earthling needs a helper, an ally. It's not only Adam who's made in the image of God here. And so imagine you're an Israelite in Babylon hearing this story as the start of your story. The books that go from Genesis to the end of two kings that describe your whole nation's history and explain why you are where you are. Babylon doesn't feel like your picture of heaven. It's violent and it's chaotic. It's built around the worship of war gods like Marduk, ruled by kings who've conquered you and all the empires that became powerful neighbours of yours, Egypt, Assyria. It has its own picture of heaven on earth, its own garden city where the gods apparently are present, where you aren't made in the image of God. The king is. You are a slave to the king and to his gods. He is the image of God and you exist to feed him with your labour. That's part of the Babylon creation story. In your heaven on earth place, it looks a long way away. If you're an Israelite, your heaven on earth place will end up being Jerusalem and the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It is in the rear view mirror. And Babylon is set up as a thin place designed to make you feel close to its gods. The architecture of the city, the temples, the images of God, the God kings placed around the city serving Marduk and his undergods. See, the whole nature of life, the, the thin place you're in, is meant to make you feel like Babylon's gods are in control, but your story is different. And your God has told you to plant gardens in this city and to live your story and to seek the fruitfulness of the people around you. To be like those little streams, those little pockets of living water popping up in a dry and dead place. See, Genesis would be a subversive kind of origin story in that context, wouldn't it? It's the story that provides fodder for the prophets to undermine Babylonian stories and their gods tipping their picture of God and humanity on their head. It's the story that tells you that you're as valuable as the king. That tells you that images of your God aren't dead wood made with weird rituals, but living, breathing, life-making men and women, you. It's a story that tells you where you really belong, not in exile in Babylon, but somewhere like Eden, heaven on earth, in the presence of your God, enjoying his hospitality and his gift of life, the tree of life. It tells you that all the life and the goodness you see around you in Babylon's gardens, the fruitful trees, the ordering of the city, trees growing because of the water coming from the Euphrates, all the life in all the world 
comes from the water that God put in the world, the cosmic life-giving water that flowed out of Eden. It tells you that your Babylonian neighbours were also made to worship and serve your God, the God who gives them life and breath. He made them to be pictures of his life in the world too, and that's going to shape the way you treat your neighbours, isn't it? They too were created to partner with your God in working on his thin places, places like Eden, rather than gardening in deadly and destructive places like the city you're in and its temples and its gardens. Now, we'll see the story goes downhill fast next week, but this picture of heaven on earth, the Eden picture, doesn't disappear through the Bible's story. It's everywhere. Eden is built into the tabernacle and the temple where the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God, is set up. There's tree decorations everywhere. There's a giant menorah, a candlestick that's a picture of the tree of life, a picture of life in God's presence, the God who is light and life. It's there in descriptions of the promised land, of the land flowing with abundant goodness and provision. It's there in the prophet's hopes for restoration. Ezekiel has this picture of God's garden mountain, Eden, the meeting place between the heavens and the earth, describing the fall and then a restored mountaintop temple where the waters of life flow out from underneath the temple. Temple's facing east. It's an interesting little detail given Eden's the garden's place in the east. That's a bit nerdy. But this water of life is flowing out of the temple and it's becoming these rivers that will feed the nations. Everywhere the river flows, everything will live. There's even a huge number of fish. It's an odd detail. There's fruit trees, fruit trees of all kinds growing on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fall. Every month they'll bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. This new Eden temple, the water is producing this fruitfulness in the land and their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. And this is not just in Israel, it's flowing out into the world. It's Eden, but better. It's Jerusalem, but doing what Jerusalem should have done not becoming like the nations, not worshipping their stupid statues, but being God's image-bearing people who partner with God as he creates life. And this picture is certainly better than Babylon. This Ezekiel imagery, it's something John picks up as Jesus, the heavenly man, walks on earth. The man, John tells us straight up, is God dwelling, God tabernacling with his people, Edening with his people. John has us read his whole gospel, seeing Jesus as the new temple. The other Gospels end with that. John kicks it off. Jesus is talking about his body when he talks about the temple being destroyed. His disciples don't get it till the end when he's raised from the dead. But through John's Gospel, the waters of life bubble up all around Jesus. As he comes as the Eden on earth man, he says he's coming to bring living water that will satisfy, that will provide eternal life. He says rivers of living water will flow from those who believe in him, not just from him. And John makes it clear, by this he means the Spirit, who those who believe in him will later receive. Receive the Spirit so we become like temples that bring life into the world, like Edens, these thin places. And then water pours from his side in Jerusalem at his death. This flow of water. As John reports, he's both crucified and buried in a garden. And raised in a garden so that one of his closest friends, Mary, thinks he's the gardener. Here's Jesus, the gardening king, the image of God, the priest king, the new human, 
and he sets about showing what abundant life looks like, flowing from him with the weirdest bit of detail you get in John's Gospel, where they go out fishing after the resurrection and they catch a huge number of fish. Don't even tells you the number. But they can't haul the net in because there's so much fish in this water. It's a little Ezekiel picture. It's a little New Eden moment. And it's John, too, who picks up the new heavens and the new earth as a new Eden with the tree of life and the waters of life flowing together as people enjoy life with God for eternity. His vision of the end of the story. The angel shows John the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. A new Eden. A fulfilment of Ezekiel's vision. Like Adam and Eve, though, like Israel, we've lost this garden paradise. Our experience of thin places where the barrier between heaven and earth breaks down can be a loss that haunts us, that can remind us of what's lost, a taste of who we were made to be and what's to come. We were made to live with God, enjoying his gift of life forever, and death and destruction and desecration, sin, got in the way. And so we live in our own Babylon. We live surrounded by people chasing heaven on earth moments with their own origin stories, wanting the garden, the fruitfulness of the garden, without the garden of God who brings the fruitfulness. Wanting Eden without the presence of God. But Eden without the presence of God isn't Eden. It's Babylon. A counterfeit garden serving up counterfeit images that when we worship them or when we live like them, lead us to death, lead us to exile from God. See, Adam was a priest king who led humanity up the garden path. We need a king who will lead us out of exile from Eden and back to the orchard, restoring life in these dead, exiled statues so that we can represent God again. We were images of God in need of restoration, carted off, into Babylon. We needed God's presence restored to us through living water, which in John we're told is the Holy Spirit. And that's how baptism, and we've just seen one, baptism is a picture of the gospel and and life in a new Eden. Living water. Us as new Edens. We need to be brought back to God's life-giving hospitality. The tree of life, that's how communion is a picture of the gospel and of life in a new Eden. And our neighbours need that too. They need that same life-giving restoration. That's exactly the story of the gospel. The gospel is the story of us, all of us being earthlings, those who didn't just come from the earth but worshipped the earth. And so the earth was our destiny, the destiny of the gods we chose, who we face exile from God, breathless and dead and heading to the grave as a result. But the gospel is the story of us becoming heavenly people again through a heavenly man. See, here's a cool thing Paul does with the Genesis story about earthling Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about how we were like Adam. We were breathed images. Natural here is the word in Greek, suke icon. It's the word for psyche, soul, and breath. We were the image of breath, given the breath of God to live in these earth bodies. The first Adam was like that, a living being, living with the breath of God, 
But in Jesus, we find a new humanity, a new Eden humanity. Jesus, he said, is a heavenly man or a pneuma, pneumata, pneumaticon. That's the spirit, the image of the spirit. Icon, image, we, we get that. The image of the spirit. And in Jesus, the new man, our humanity is recreated so that we aren't just earthlings anymore, destined to die and become earth, but heavenly creatures destined for imperishable, eternal life in heavenly bodies that don't die and that truly reflect God's glory. And Paul says, just as we bore the image of the earthling, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. As we share in Jesus' death and resurrection, as we're united to him by the Spirit of God, not just by his animating breath, but by his Spirit living in us. Having his Spirit at work in us to give us heavenly bodies, imperishable bodies, we will bear the image of the heavenly man for eternity in that new Eden. And this becomes our origin story as followers of the heavenly man, the priest king, the true image of the invisible God. We become not just thin places that hint at something lost, but Edens on earth who show the way to find it again. As we live in God's presence and share life together as royal priests, his nation of royal priests, carrying this image of the heavenly man Jesus with us in the world as we wait for him to make all things new, tasked with the sort of work that cultivates this life in the world. Now there are lots of places that you might go in the good world that God made, lots of places that have been cultivated to be like a Garden of Eden where you might feel close to God where you're encountering one of those heaven-on-earth zones and where you're reminded of the God who made the world, where you're reminded of where the story begins and where we're headed. But perhaps there's actually no place that you should feel closer to God or more like you're in a heaven-on-earth place, an Eden place, than as we gather together with other images of Jesus, other living Edens, other people made in the image of Jesus to worship him and proclaim the hope of the gospel together as we share God's hospitality at his table. We're going to do that in a moment. Will you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you that you create life. That you create the world we live in, its abundant fruitfulness, the waters that bring life, the the things that feed our cities, that keep people alive with the breath of you in their lungs. You are light and life and love and we are so overwhelmed when we're confronted with your majesty, your power as creator. Lord, we confess that so often we're tempted to worship the wrong things. We confuse the goodness of the world you've made with you and we give our hearts to dead stuff. We put our trust in princes, in other earthlings. We we seek fulfillment in all the wrong places and that leads us away from you. We confess that that is us without your work in our hearts by your spirit. And we repent for those times this week where we have turned our back on you, the creator, to worship and serve created things instead. But Lord, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the the one who brings living water, the one who restores all things. 
in whom all things are being reconciled. And we thank you that that restoration starts with people. The images taken off into exile by our sin, but being restored by your spirit to be heaven on earth people. To be those who carry with us this story of the gospel, of our death to that old way of life and our new life in you. As we rely on you for life, not just now, but for eternity. And so we pray as we share in this communion together, reminding ourselves of our oneness with you and with each other, our oneness as your people in the world, that you would be working in our hearts to shape us to work and serve you in your world together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.